lift your hands to the Lord this morning. The prayer in that song is that as you trust the Lord, as you step out into the deep waters of life, there's a lot of deep water to step into today. Some of that deep water is family dynamics. Some of that deep water is work and the environments that we have there. But as we step out into those, we're asking God to help us stay in a posture where we're still able to see above those waters, where we're, you know, like where we're treading water, you know, your head's above the water. And, and you know, where we are making a, a difference, but we're able to see exactly what the enemy is trying to do. And our eyes are then fixed upon him. The Bible calls uh, that the author and the finisher of our faith. That he is the one who has the last word. Amen. He has the last word. No demon in hell, no voice on earth. God has the last word. Aren't you glad for that? God has the last word. And if God said it, that settles it. Amen. Father, we thank you for that truth today. Lord, we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. And Father, we declare today that God, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, we declare today that God, we will keep our eyes fixed on you because you are the author and finisher of our faith. And that Lord, we will trust you. That the bottom line question of faith is, do I trust you? And God, we put our trust in you today. We don't trust in in the strength of man or as the Bible says, in horses or chariots or man, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And Father, we thank you today. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team, this morning. Wow. Amen. Praise the Lord. You guys did awesome this morning and last night. You know, pretty much same team last night and then back here this morning. Come on. I drove by the church yesterday afternoon. I think it was at 2 o'clock, and they were already here working on things for last night. And, uh, and for those you know, who came out last night, praise the Lord. Uh, we encourage you that next month is going to be even greater. And, uh, but you know, there's people that are committing an enormous amount of time and effort to bring hope to another generation. Amen? And last night, watching all of these you know, youth and, and young adults uh, around the altars, just hungry for God and calling to God, dream of my life to see a generation captivated for Jesus. Amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well, on that note today, I want to talk about, uh, we're, living as, we're talking about living as sons and daughters of the king, and today I want to talk about leaving kingdom legacy. Kingdom legacy. And I think this is a really important message. I'm excited to talk about this this morning. And so I just want you to bow your heads with me today. And let's ask Holy Spirit to help us to hear today. Father, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace your word today. That Father, as we look to your scripture and Father, as the things that you've deposited in my spirit, I bring them forth today. Lord, I pray that, that, that God, they would fall upon uh, as a farmer would say, on fallow ground, grounded is ready and prepared to receive the seed. And Father, that God, then it would bring forth a harvest that would be 40, 60, 100 fold. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word. We, we, uh, ever since COVID, Lord, we just don't take for granted meeting anymore. We just recognize that, Lord, uh, every day that we get, we get to celebrate you as a good day. And Father, we're grateful for that. And we pray for all those around the world who are living under oppression and not able to be able to meet and gather and, and to worship you. And Lord, have to do so in secrecy or in hiding. But Father, we pray for them today and we ask God that you would be with them in Jesus' name. Amen. Dale Hiscock is leaving today and actually flew out last night and he's heading to Asia. He didn't tell me what country. And, uh, but I just ask you to keep him in prayer. He goes to many restricted access nations, countries that he's not supposed to be in and bringing the gospel to people there. And so we would just ask that you pray for him and keep him in, uh, before the Lord. And uh, that would be amazing. Praise the Lord. Well, you know, we've been talking about living as Uh, sons and daughters of the king and spent since last September just basically talking about the nature of our relationship to God, that we are not uh, 
loyal subjects, but we are royal family. Amen? There's a huge difference. A lot of times Christians get caught up in living their lives as loyal subjects, you know? But we're more than subjects of the king. We are family of the king. We're royal family. Amen? That is who we are. And uh, so we want to... uh, we want to talk now as we move into the new year about how does that understanding of who we are affect how we live? <laughs> Put your hands together for Jeb and Nawal. Come on now. <laughs> you were getting more attention than I was, so I thought I'd just acknowledge it. There you <laughs> Every step you took, the stage was creaking, you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> Ah, so I started off New Year's by just talking about practically how, you know, why New Year's resolutions don't quit, uh, don't work, I should say, is because uh, the reality is, is that discipline, self-discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. So we need to draw closer to Christ, and then He arms us with the ability to be able to stand. And so again, if you want to, you know, keep those New Year's resolutions, then live as a son or daughter of the King. Amen? And then a couple weeks ago, during uh, Kingdom Builder Sunday, I talked about, you know, not giving as a slave or giving out of obligation, but giving and sacrificing as a son and how that's different than sacrificing as a royal subject. But when we sacrifice as a son, when we give to the kingdom, we're actually giving to and, and working in our own empire. You understand that? You're investing in the kingdom in which you live and work and dwell and have your own being. And uh, that as Canadians, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of Canada, and we're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we're not just uh, everyday Joe citizens. The Bible says we're co-heirs with Christ. We're rulers and reigners in this kingdom. Amen? And so when we make sacrifice for the kingdom, we don't do it as some random addition to the outside, some orphan who's been, you know, given a, a job in the, in the courts. No, no, no. We come in and we are able to make sacrifice as a son or a daughter. That we are literally, you know, laying our lives down for the family business, so to speak. Amen? And there's a huge difference between those two. And so today I want to talk about kingdom legacy. And all successful dynasties throughout history have been built on legacy, upon one king, one generation, passing it on to the next, and on to the next, and on to the next. Otherwise, there'd be no dynasty. And so they're they're built upon this concept of legacy. And when I say the word legacy, maybe a lot of different things conjure up in your mind, but let me just read you what the dictionary says about what legacy is. It says, legacy is a gift by will, especially of money, or other personal property, something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor or from the past. Another definition is in law, it's a gift of property, especially personal property, as money by will uh, or a bequest. And then finally, anything handed down from the past as from an ancestor or predecessor, the legacy, for example, of ancient Rome. So do you catch what that actually means? Legacy is about leaving something behind after you're gone. That's what legacy is about. And the question today is, what is your legacy? What is your legacy? I'm going to talk about three areas where we leave a legacy. The first one, the obvious one from the definitions, is a financial legacy. We need to talk about this this morning. And I want you to pay really close attention. Okay, because this is something that is extremely important for the success of the kingdom of God. So this is the most obvious one taken from these definitions. And uh, in law, it says a gift of property, especially of personal property, as money by will, a bequest. Are we leaving a legacy, more specifically a financial inheritance, for the next generation? Now there's a, a verse, a proverb, <clears throat> that I hear many Christians quote all the time especially charismatic and Pentecostal Christians. They love to quote this verse. And I don't have any problem with the passage. In fact, I I believe the truth contained in the passage, and I have no problem uh, uh, wanting and and, and attributing that and applying that to my own life. Now, I also realize it's a proverb. And 
And even though, and that people take it out of context and they apply it out of context. And if there's any book in the Bible that you could take a passage out of the context of its entire chapter, it's the book of Proverbs, right? Does everybody understand that? Because they are little nuggets. They're little pearls of wisdom or of truth. So you can, you can take them out of the context of the entire chapter, although some of the chapters are all devoted to a chapter on wisdom, for example, or whatever. But, but you can take that, that truth and you can pull it out of the context of the entire chapter, unlike many other portions of Scripture, and it still makes complete sense. Does everybody understand what I'm saying so far? But the proverb itself still has to be complete. In other words, you can't take half of the proverb, especially if there's a, a conjunction in there, and, and, and take half of the proverb and apply it to your life and ignore the other half of the proverb. Does everybody get me? All right? And so one of the proverbs where Christians do this all the time is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. And they take this portion of the proverb and it says this, but the wealth of the sinner or of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Now that's a, a favorite declaration of mine in scripture. And, and I like to think that that's going to be applicable to my life. You know, for the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. I'm like, hallelujah, bring it on, Lord. And, you know, I asking yourself as you hear that phrase, though, but okay, but who's the righteous? Who is this wealth being stored up for? Who, who is the righteous? Well, interestingly, it's the answer to that question is right in the verse. It's right in the verse. Because the verse started, that phrase I just read started with a conjunction. It said, but, everybody say, but but the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. But, but, it's a conjunction. It's a word upon which the whole verse hinges. You don't get the second half without the first half. So the question is, what does the first half of the verse say? Proverbs 13, 22, it says, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. That's grandchildren for those who didn't get their coffee yet this morning. Just to interpret that for you, that's grandchildren. A a, a good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren, but the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. A righteous man, a good man, a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Who is the wealth of the wicked stored up for? The good man, the righteous man. The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the one who will leave an inheritance for their grandchildren. And I hear Christians say, oh, Lord, I'm standing in the gap for the great wealth transfer where you're going to bring the wealth of the wicked and you're going to bring it to the church. It doesn't say that in the scripture. What it says is that God has, has taken the wealth of the wicked and stored up for those who will leave an inheritance for their children's children. There's a but in there. Thank God for great big butts, right? There's one right there in that passage. <laughs> Got some enthusiasm in the house this morning. Hallelujah. And I think we we ignore this truth at our own peril. So what's my point this morning? The promise of the wealth of the wicked being stored up for the righteous, it has a caveat. That's what that but is. It's a caveat, a qualification, a provisio, uh, a condition. The condition is that you, in order to make that, to get that wealth transfer, you need to be somebody who has positioned your life to leave an inheritance for your children's children. And Jesus said, those that, have been, that, that you can, he could trust, the Lord can trust with little things, he can give much. So the wealth transfer isn't going to come to you if you're in debt. Wealth transfer is not going to come to you if you are living beyond your means. Not going to come to you if you have no plan, you have no bank accounts, you have no investments, if you have no portfolio, if you have no place to put it. You have no... You have, according to the scripture, you have no right to even claim that passage for your life if you're not living in such a way as to be one who will live in inheritance for your grandchildren. Are you hearing me? We live in a world that is crazy in debt. I did a little bit of research this week, had to update 
my numbers when I've talked about debt before, but province of Ontario is $400 billion in debt. $400 billion in debt. Our federal government, less than a decade, was less in debt than that. It was only $400 billion in debt. Now the province of Ontario is $400 billion in debt. Our federal government is $1.2 trillion in debt. Get those numbers in your head. They're huge. $1.2 trillion. Our national debt, if you take the federal debt and all the provincial debts and you add them all together, government debt in this country is $1.9 trillion, just under $2 trillion. So to give you a picture of how much money is that, if you took $1 bills, which I know we phased out in this country, but if you took $1 bills and you laid them end to end, end to end, end to end, $1.9 trillion would wrap around the world 2,220 times. That's how big our national debt is. And what's my point in mentioning the debt? Well, as sons and daughters of the king, we should set a different standard because we are under another kingdom's authority. Amen? It's time for us, Christians, it's time for you to tighten your belt, to live within your means, to establish plans that will see you leave a financial legacy for your grandchildren. And then you'll be positioned for the great wealth transfer that we love to talk about, end quote. But don't come to a conference and stand up there and lay hold of that verse if you're not doing any of the things that would enable God to be able to fulfill that promise. Are you hearing me this morning? So how do we do this? Stop living on credit. Are you hearing me? Stop living on credit. Well, you know, pastor, I just went out and bought it, and I just have faith that God's going to bring the money. So I put it on my card, and, and I'll just wait patiently for God to bring it. That's not faith. You just went into debt. The Bible says that when you're in debt, you are a slave to the lender. That's what the Bible says. You're a slave to that person. Are you hearing? And, you know, if you actually follow this, and I, and, and, and I know people like this that position themselves, they can lend money to other people. Christians should be able to do that. Are you hearing me? It's the word of God. Stop living off credit. Pay off your debts. Are you hearing me? Pay off your debts. And please start with the little guy. Your guy came in and fixed your furnace last month or two months ago and you still haven't paid him? Pay him first. Don't make your local guy who lives down the street from you have to eat craft dinner because you're not paying your bills. Smarten up. Get it paid. The credit card company, they're all set up for you not to pay it. In fact, they like it when you don't pay it. They charge a thing called interest on it. It just keeps revolving. And I'm not saying don't pay that off. Yes, you got to pay that off too. But make sure you pay these small debts to small businesses and you keep the small business economy, which is like two-thirds of the economy in this country, going. I hate it when I have somebody call me up, and I've had this happen. Someone call me up, does so-and-so go to your church? Uh, yes. Well, you know, they owe me $1,200 for such and such a thing that I did on their car, did this or did that. Thank you. I'll talk to them. Such bad advertising for the kingdom of God. Get out of debt. Stop living without, with, not living within your means and get out of debt. Oh my word. Okay. Adopt biblical principles of finance. So include, you know, tithing, living debt-free, giving, offerings. These things actually, and this is the great irony of it, actually bring prosperity. I found it interesting when I was sharing with you a couple weeks ago about sacrifice, and I was talking about tithing, that 75% of the people in America and Canada that tithe give more than 10%. They've discovered that there's something in this. And they give because God's favor rests upon those who give. God, the Bible says, will be a debtor to no man. Are you hearing me? So you can't outgive God. It's an impossibility. He's not going to find himself in a place where he owes you. 
Do you hear what I'm saying? God owes me nothing. And I end up giving, and he just overwhelms me with blessing. And the blessing, the Bible says, overtakes me. Now, either, either you believe the word or you don't. I believe it. Now, people say to me, well, pastor, you know, tithing is Old Testament. I agree. I agree. I agree. It was an Old Testament law. And in the Old Testament, you had to do it. And if you didn't, if you got your tithe or you withheld your tithe, you owed 20% interest. We're not introducing that at Desert Stream. Just so you know. It's not about law. It's not about law. There's, there's no legal obligation to tithe. Any more than there's a legal obligation to keep all of the ceremonial cleansing laws in the Old Testament or keep the legal obligation to, about washing your food or uh, women with menstrual cycles that they had in the Old Testament. You can dig into the Old Testament. They got some weird stuff in there, you know, uh, the laws. Weird to us in our modern sensibilities. But the principle of generosity didn't end with the Old Testament. Are you hearing what I'm saying? In fact, in the New Testament, the widow gave her everything she had, the might. The Pharisee, he went up and tithed, and, and the widow gave everything, and God commended the widow. That every example of giving in the New Testament surpasses giving in the Old Testament. So that tithing, if it just becomes a, a, a foundation that is literally, literally just a place to start. Just a place to start. Because giving should be a part of our nature. And if you want to, one of the problems in our society that keeps Christians even in debt is keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody understand what I mean by that principle? You know, your neighbor gets a, a, a new TV, you got to get a new TV, right? Your neighbor gets a new car, you got to have a new car. Neighbor upgrades their house, you got to upgrade your house. Blah, 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 blah. And all of us have different examples and different things. Somebody joins this club, you got to join this club. Somebody does this, you got to do this. All of this stuff that we do, and sometimes we just simply can't afford to do it. And we're doing it anyway. And we get in debt. And so this spirit of needing to, you know, be in there with this in-group who's had all this stuff robs us of liberty. But if you want to break the spirit of the Joneses, then become a generous person. Generosity breaks that spirit. Where you would rather, you would rather give to the Lord than succumb to that spirit of money or mammon, as the Old Testament called it. You heard what I'm saying? And, and when you get broke free from that, man, next thing you need to do is develop a plan. Have a financial plan. I meet so many Christians, they don't have a budget. They don't have a plan. They don't have any, any idea of how they're going to retire. I find that ludicrous. My wife and I, when we got married, on that first year I was in the ministry, the church said, would you like to contribute to the pension plan? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. And so, since I became a pastor, like some 40 years ago, I've tithed into a pension plan so that you all don't have to take care of me in my retirement. Are you hearing me? It's called planning. Hello. And I'll have a house that I live in that's paid for. Are you hearing me? I'll have no debt. Planning. And if you don't have a work in a, in, in a company or for an organization that has a pension plan, then you need to make a pension plan. You need to take 10, 15%, 20% of your income, whatever you might need, and you need to put that into investments. And you say, well, I can't afford to do it. Then we'll go back to point number one. Stop living on credit and lower your standard of living. Live within your means. Your means is actually dictated to by planning. Plan. Everybody say plan. You see, the reality is nobody ever planned to fail. They just failed to plan. And you need to plan. You need to have a plan. And, then you, and, and so that takes me to the last point. You need to, and that plan should include investing. You should be making investments. Well, I don't know about the stock market. Then put it in mutual funds. If you don't like mutual funds, then, then for goodness sakes, at least put it in a GIC somewhere. Do you know what I mean? And right now, GICs will pay you 5%. So it's nothing to scoff at. You had a million dollars at retirement, 5% a year. Some pretty good change. You know what I mean? That'd be like $50,000 a year. Just come to me, and you're not doing anything for it. Hallelujah. That's called planning. So that's enough about money. 
That's the first legacy that I think the definition tackles. The second one is leaving a legacy of your personal character. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures here this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 and 34. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Job 27, 5. I will never admit that you are in the right, he said to his accusers. I will never admit that you are right till I die. I will not deny my integrity. Psalm 25, verse 21, may integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Proverbs 10, 9, the man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. Proverbs 11:3: 3, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 13, 6, righteousness guards the man of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Next weekend is Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. How many like Super Bowl Sunday? Let me see your hands. I like it. Football and food. How can you get much better than that, right? Super Bowl Sunday. And next weekend, the Super Bowl will be the most watched program on television in 2024. I did a little bit of research in this. The number one most watched program in the history of the United States, the most watched program was the Apollo landing with 150 million people. The number two most watched event with 130-some people was last year's Super Bowl. In fact, number two through nine are all Super Bowls. Number 10 was Nixon's resignation. (laughs) Some of you are like, Nixon, who's he? Look him up. (laughs) My fellow Americans, you know what I mean? Uh, It was Nixon's resignation. I also did a little bit more digging. Out of the top 30 broadcasted shows in America, in history of television, 24 of them were Super Bowls. What does that tell us this morning? God bless America and God bless football. (laughs) Football is the biggest religion in America by far. By far. And a lot of the reasons why Americans love football is it's the ultimate reality TV show. It is, it is, it's not scripted, despite what some of the conspiracy theorists might think. It is one group of people pitting their talents against another group of people, and, and what comes out in that contest is what the people are made of. And the obsession, I think, that we have with sport in this incredibly, increasingly artificial world, is that sport is still real. Sport is still a competition where a person's skills and their nature and their character is put on display, and it either makes it or breaks it for the day. And I think that's why people like it. Americans love their football and all sports events because there's a belief that sport builds character. And I think that's true. But I heard one person say, in my experience, playing sports does not just build character, it reveals it. And there'll be some character points, I'll bet you, that'll be revealed in the course of the weekend. Maybe even more after the Super Bowl's won, we might see some of the character of the winning team or the losing team displayed on the field and after the field, if you know what I mean. Being people of integrity is difficult, but it's a tremendous legacy for you to leave for your children and your children's children. In our self-absorbed world, few people give thought to how their, effect, their actions affect those that they have relationship with. We're so focused on the modern definition of culture, which is human dignity. We used to be a culture built on honor. Now we're a culture built on dignity. You might say, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is when we look at human dignity as a whole. But unfortunately, what's happened is it's individual dignity that trumps everything. And so instead of all of the institutions of honor are being challenged and are being uh, attacked 
in the name of individual integrity, individual, I should say, identity, of who I see myself to be. And the fallout of that is affecting our culture. And you, you, none of us lives our life in an isolation chamber. We live our lives connected to everybody around us. That's how we live our lives. And that connection to everybody around us is the way that, that we leave legacy. We leave a great legacy of character. The idea of individual happiness, of individual identity triumphing all other considerations was made extremely clear to me in the fall of 2022. And in an article written by law professor uh, Lara Bazelon, it was entitled this, Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love. In her article, Lara explains how maintaining self-love is more important than any other consideration, such as marriage vows and family integrity. In her own words, this is what Laura writes. Laura said, my divorce nearly seven years ago freed me from a relationship that was crushing my spirit. It freed my children, then five and three, from growing up in a profoundly unhealthy environment. Now, I know what you're thinking, Pastor. I would tend to agree with her. It can be profoundly unhealthy to remain in a relationship that's abusive and unloving. Children are better off living uh, with divorce rather than living in such unhealthy environments. And for certain, as pastors, you need to know that we would never encourage someone to stay in a relationship that was abusive, uh, that was uh, dangerous to your well-being or to your children, etc. And But this is not what Laura was talking about. Listen as she continues. She says this, there was no emotional or physical abuse in our home. There was no absence of love. I was in love with my husband when we got divorced. Part of me is in love with him still. I suspect that will always be the case. Even now, after everything, when he walks into the room, my stomach drops the same way it does before you go down a roller coaster. I divorced my husband, not because I didn't love him. I divorced my husband because I love myself more. Such a statement is a perfect reflection of a society that's lost its sense of love, of commitment, of integrity. Character, integrity, is about doing the right thing. Not necessarily the thing that feels right at the time. There are so many moments that the right thing doesn't feel good. My wife and I joke about this all the time. We're going to another event. We know we need to go to it and everything else. We're like, don't you just hate doing the right thing? You know? You're like, wouldn't it be nice just to stay home and not do the right thing? But we do the right thing. Why? Because it's the right thing. That's why we do it. We do it because it's the right thing. Because I'm more interested in my legacy than on my personal feelings. Yeah, I've never regretted doing the right thing, by the way. I've been tired because I've done the right thing. Been exhausted because I've done the right thing. You know? I've needed physiotherapy because I've done the right thing, but I've never regretted doing the right thing. It's the right thing to keep our commitments and our vows. It's the right thing to accept responsibility and not pass the buck. It's the right thing to love unconditionally without expectation of return. It's the right thing to live justly. It's the right thing to show mercy. It's the right thing to be and exercise humility. It's the right thing to place the needs of others, perhaps your spouse and your children, above yourself. It's the right thing. It's the right thing. As sons and daughters of the king, we are living testaments of the king and his kingdom. So living as a son and daughter of the king is to live with character, and to live with integrity. When we lack those things, we are falsely advertising the kingdom of God. Living as a son or a daughter of the king is doing the right thing. And if we do the right thing, we leave a great legacy for our children and our grandchildren. Andrew Carnegie said this, as I grow older, I pay less attention to what people say. I just watch what they do. And that's the world, especially today. There's so much hot air in politics. Oh, my word. Put a sock in it. 
It's terrible. I am not looking forward to this season because every U.S. channel is going to be elections where they're just ripping each other apart. And the primaries are embarrassing, whichever side of the spectrum you're on. It's idiotic. It is completely a complete gong show from beginning to end. And everything they say, blah, 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 blah. What are you going to do? We need more politicians that are men and women of God who will stand up and do the right thing. Do the right thing. Not say the right thing. Do the right thing. Is that, am I making sense to anybody here this morning? We got to start doing the right thing. C.S. Lewis said this in The Problem of Pain. Everybody's like, I knew we'd get there at some point. <laughs> got to bring Lewis into it. And this is what he said. He said, we were not made primarily that we may love God, though we were made for that too, but we are made that God may love us, that we may become objects in which the divine love may rest. Well pleased. However, to ask that God should love, uh, God's love, I should say, should be content with us as we are, is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains and sins that are in our life and our personal character. And because he already loves us, then he must labor to make us more lovable. Isn't that interesting? And then Lewis adds this, what we here and now call our happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediment, then in fact, we shall be happy. Let me translate that for you. He's saying that happiness and being happy in this life is not our focus, and it's not God's focus either. But changing us and making us into a man or a woman of character is his focus. And when we become that man or woman of character, then we shall be happy. I have not met a person who has sacrificed and has lived a life of character who says to me and looked at me and said, I just wished I'd been more frivolous and stupid with my life. I've not met those people. And in fact, people of character tend to be very well-adjusted, very happy, very content people because there's something bigger in their life than themselves. And that's where we need to get to. Jesus said, I mean, Paul said of Jesus, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Our thinking needs to get reshaped, be like his, have the same mind as his. And that brings me to my third legacy. First is financial. Second one is your personal character. The third one is a spiritual legacy, a spiritual legacy. First Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul said that. Second Timothy 2, 2, Paul said, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As sons and daughters of the king, you are meant to leave a Jesus legacy here on earth. We're talking about Gen Jesus, young adults. They, they can't thoroughly walk into who they are unless we leave them a legacy of Jesus. Ryan said, truthfully, we, we're doing it because we want to invest in Gen Jesus. We want there to be a legacy. My, my passion is to leave a legacy, and it's a Jesus legacy. I don't want you to just be somebody who leaves a financial legacy and has character. I also want you to leave a Jesus legacy. I want you to pass on to the next generation what it is to be hopelessly and helplessly in love with Jesus. That Jesus is the centerpiece of your life and of your faith. God adopted you so your life can have meaning beyond your own and your own days here on earth. So that God can live through you for eternity. That God can, can pass on the nature of Christ through you to your children and to your grandchildren and to your great-grandchildren. As Billy Graham said, what would it matter if I won the whole world to Jesus and lost my own family? And that's why isn't it awesome that we had here, what, in 2019, the fall of 2019, we had Billy Graham's grandson here in Belleville. That spiritual legacy as he was preaching the word and hundreds of people came to Christ. Spiritual legacy of Billy Graham is his grandson here preaching the word of God 
in the city of Belleville, that is spiritual legacy. Sign me up. I like spiritual legacy. And we need to be more focused on spiritual legacy. Sometimes parents get all focused on financial legacy and on character development, and they forget spiritual legacy. All three of them are important. We need to leave a spiritual legacy as well. As a son or daughter, God wants to build spiritual legacy with the days that you have on earth. He wants you to be constructing something with your life that is spiritual that you can impact and pass on to your children and to your grandchildren. This heritage is a trust of God's truths, and it has to be carefully protected in your life. If you fail to guard these truths, then the legacy gets polluted and corrupted and maybe goes off on some weird tangent, or worse yet, it gets lost entirely, and your children and your children's children grow up not knowing the faith that was yours. I look throughout Israel's history, and one of the saddest things is that there'd be a, a return to God, one of the kings would return to God, and he'd be like, yes, we're going to do it. And two generations later, his grandson is a complete pagan. No. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can I give you just a few pointers on that? The first one is this. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't ask your kids to do something spiritually you won't do yourself. Okay? That's the first thing. So people say, well, what was it like, you know, raising kids as a pastor? And I said, well, I just tried to be the same person here at church that I am at home so that my kids don't live with a duplicity that they can't reconcile. And then they grow up and say, I don't want nothing to do with that. My parents are just hypocrites. You don't want that. So I'm not perfect. And I'm honest about my imperfections here because my kids know my imperfections at home. And people used to say, what are you really like? I say, ask my wife. She'll tell you. Yep. The reality is, is that we can't, the first thing we have to do is just refuse to be a hypocrite. You refuse to be that person. You know, the second thing then is, is to inculcate spiritual truths in your life and then live them out with your children every day. And I'd, I'd love to be able to tell you that yet we did family devotions every night around the table. Yes, before the kids were allowed dessert, Papa grabbed a Bible, he opened the thing up, and he spoke in tongues for 10 minutes and then broke the word of life. Didn't happen. Not even once did that happen. But we did have conversations about God around the table all the time. And we did every night when we put the kids to bed, from the time they were very young, we went around and we prayed over all of our children and we spoke and we, we would prophesy over them. We would, pre, and we would speak into their future and into who they were. Sometimes they were sleeping, sometimes they were awake. But we would always spend time praying for our children because spiritual legacy is important to us. Anybody tra tracking with me here this morning? Spiritual legacy, what is that? It all consists of the stories, you can tell your kids the stories of how you responded to life's difficulty. Our kids journeyed with us through all kinds of life's difficulties. They saw how mom and dad lived in the midst of those difficulties. How you celebrated and worshipped. They got dragged to every church event we had, and they saw mom and dad on the front pew wherever we were, worshiping the Lord. How you prayed, how you made a difference in the lives of others. You know, when, don't just give to other people. Go in and help other people and take your kids along with you. Are you hearing me? Uh, how you conquered your bad attitudes and your habits. If you got some bad attitudes and some bad habits, let your kids get involved in the journey of you getting better. My kids knew I had a bad temper. Every one of them has seen my bad temper. But my grandkids probably don't know I have a bad temper for two reasons. First of all, because I've gotten better at controlling my bad temper. And secondly, your grandkids. Who can ever get mad at your grandkids? <laughs> you know, your kids were just such irritating creatures sometimes, but grandchildren are perfect. Do you ever notice that? They're just absolutely perfect. And so you can't get mad at grandkids. So like your whole nature just seems to be rewritten when it comes to your grandkids. They're absolutely awesome. Man, if I'd have known they were so great, I'd had them first. And then I'd have practice, and then I would have had kids. You know what I'm saying? Because they're just so awesome. Praise the Lord. Wow. Isn't that right, Maddie? Grandkids are perfect, right? <laughs> uh, you know, a little other things. How did you talk about people around your home, right? How have you handled disappointments? How do you treat family and others? 
You know, these are how you live spiritual legacy with your kids. You live this out, these dynamics out with your kids all the time. And then they'll live it out with their, their kids. And so you'll leave a legacy that's true. Now, I shared these stories I'm going to end with here this morning. And I look back and it was in 2014. I can't believe it was that long ago. And I've shared them at conferences a couple times before. So many of you probably heard these two stories before, but many of you not. And I want to share them with you today because they, they talk about the power of legacy. I'm going to share two stories. You ready? Both about legacy. Here goes number one. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for enmeshing the Windy City in everything from bootlegged whiskey and prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer, and his name was Easy Eddie. He was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept big Al Capone out of jail for a long, long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid Eddie very well. Not only was the money big, but also Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all of the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the life, the high life of the Chicago mob, and he gave little consideration to the atrophy that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had clothes, cars, a good education. Nothing was withheld from his son. Price was no object. And despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was, yet with all of his wealth and influence, there were two things that he could not give his son. He couldn't pass on his good name, and he couldn't give him a good example. So one day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. Easy Eddie decided... To rectify the wrongs that he had done, he decided that he would go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone. He would clean up his tarnished name and offer his son some semblance of integrity. To do this, he would have to testify against Capone and the mob, and he knew that the cost would be great. So he testified to court of law. Within the year, Easy Eddie, his life ended in a blaze of gunfire in a lonely Chicago street. But in his eyes, he had given his son the greatest gift he had to offer at the greatest price that he could ever pay. Police removed from Easy Eddie's pockets a rosary, a crucifix, a religious medallion, and a poem clipped from a magazine, and the poem read, The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. Now is the only time you own, live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in time, for the clock may soon be still. Easy Eddie turned it around. Second story. World War II produced a lot of heroes. One such was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. And he was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. And after he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and he realized someone had forgotten to top up his fuel tank so he would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and then get back to his ship. So his flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and he headed back to the fleet. As he was returning to the the carrier, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft were speeding their way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie, and so the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron on radio and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet without exposing them to the Japanese. So there's only one thing that he could do. He somehow had to divert that Japanese flying squadron from the fleet. So laying aside all thoughts of his own personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. His wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in and attacking one surprise plane after another. Butch wove in and out of the now-broken formation, and he fired at as many planes as possible until all of his ammunition was finally gone. Then, undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the planes, trying to clip their wingtails in hopes of damaging as many planes as he could so that they couldn't fly. Finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter plane limped back to the carrier. 
Upon arrival, he reported in and he related the event surrounding his return. Incredibly, he had a film camera mounted on his plane that told the tale. And it showed the extent that Butch did in his daring attempt to save the fleet. He destroyed five enemy aircraft by himself. That was on February 20th, 1942. And for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace, flying ace of World War II, and the first Naval Aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. But his hometown would not let the memory of, his, of their World War II hero fade. And so today, and I've been there, if you go to O'Hare National Airport in Chicago, right in the middle of it, between, uh, what is it, Terminals uh, 1 and 2, there's a, a monument and a tribute to Butch right there. And you can go and read about all that he did and all the rest of it. Now, you might be saying to yourself, what do these stories have to do with each other? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. And now, the rest of the story. <clears throat> the point of me sharing those stories this morning is that they show us how profoundly important it is for you to leave the proper kind of inheritance and legacy for your children. And also that it's never too late. He's yet he maybe got one year of being the man of integrity, the man who finally put his trust in God and said, I'm going to leave a legacy for my son. Changed history. Hear me today. This is important stuff. What kind of legacy are you leaving for your children and your children's children? For you parents here today and aspiring parents coming up, there's nothing more important, nothing more important than the legacy that you're going to leave for those that will follow after you. God isn't in the business of just changing our lives for our sake, but changing our lives for kingdom's sake. And I want the kingdom to be populated by my family. I want the kingdom to be populated by my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids. And if I, you know, do all of this work and, and, and my own family isn't in the kingdom, then that would be the greatest pain that I would ever live 